0: to drink for dot 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 the podcast that combines a lifelong film infatuation with an overarching love of drink an interactive journey that encourages the incorrigible while providing an intoxicating alternative to a night out think netflix and chill without the chill perhaps without the netflix and definitely without the strange implications of sex who knows maybe we'll learn something along the way or at the very least have a bit of immature fun welcome back everybody i'm your host jordan brooks as always in the closet of shame and not as always I'm completely alone this week, so sad fucking shit. I'm sorry to to have uh, dashed your hopes like that, because we all know when I'm alone, this goes a lot slower for you and for me. Today, as you may have read in the episode description, I am starting a very fun, for me, probably not for you, themed month, Meta March, where I'm going to be watching four very meta films, hopefully... To either one, soothe my aching soul, and to two, maybe work some, a little bit of filmic education into this podcast, which uh, it it probably doesn't need or warrant, but it's mine and so I can, I really can do with it as I uh, fucking want to. And so, along the lines of Metamarch, our first in the series, maybe one of the most fun Probably one of the most popular meta films of all times, of all time, it's a singular. Is going to be Drew Goddard and Joss Whedon's 2011, The Cabin in the Woods. This is going to be a great starting block for people trying to, I guess, get ahead on on what meta film is. Uh, that word. Was probably a lot more popular a few years ago when every joke anyone made was meta for one reason or another, and it basically just means it, it's self-reflexive. It this is a horror film about the creation of horror myths. So we have a group of kids going into the woods, and then uh, Whedon and Goddard are going to show us uh, some of the inner workings behind what's going on there and so it is a very interesting film in that respect i would normally have done this a little bit earlier but for you new listeners i'm sorry i i I got ahead of myself i got a little bit excited because this is such a great movie and and uh listeners of the show know i do love horror quite a bit probably too much and so for uh for you guys this is a little bit of housekeeping to introduce you to the format of drink for dot, dot, dot. Uh, basically me or guests and I will do as I have just done and introduce the week's film. We might give you a little bit of trivia and we're definitely going to give you some film specific drinking rules. Uh, of course, it, it wouldn't be as fun for me, uh, nor would it probably soothe the many problems in my life if I didn't also have a uh, bog-standard set of drinking rules for every, uh, not only film, but sporting event, television show, podcast, opera, painting, uh, that I ever consume or or, uh, look at, I suppose. And those are going to be as follows, we're going to drink for drinking, we're gonna drink for blood, we're gonna drink for fighting, and we're going to drink for death. Feel free to, uh, to take those as literally or as figuratively as you would like. Uh, then what's going to happen after I've introduced the films, we're going to do a little bit of an ad break, uh, which for you will only be maybe 90 seconds, but for me will be much longer, maybe 90 minutes. In this case, uh, 95 minutes, where I will sit down in front of my television with a nice tall glass of something extremely strong. And I'm going to drink from my own drinking rules because I would be a hypocrite if I didn't do that. And then uh, against all logic and responsible human behavior, I'm going to sit right back down where I am now, turn this mic back on and embarrass myself on the internet. Now, as a millennial, an old millennial, granted, uh, it's kind of my job. I so crave attention, uh, whether it's good or bad that I'm, I'm willing to uh, just be drunk. Also, it really combines, as the, the dumb intro says, my uh, absolute love for drinking and uh, watching films. It's a lot of fun. I encourage you to play along, of course. You do not have to. You're welcome to listen soberly on your commute to work or just in a jealous rage. Turn it off right now because you have a meeting to do in a few minutes and soon Drunk Jordan Brooks is going to be talking to you about how great of a time he's having. And uh, that does seem quite unfair for everyone involved. And so that's that's basic form. And I guess to continue along the lines of episode 36, the first in the Metamarch series, got to talk about Cabin in the Woods. This is a film made by two enormous fans of horror they did such an amazing job creating this vision of what horror can be. It really takes to the next level, one of the reasons I love horror. And, and for me, it is horror in general is a great way to study and actualize film because Probably because when I started watching it, I thought I was going to be terrified. And so to stop myself from being afraid of these monsters on my television, I would just decide to focus on why whoever was behind a camera or behind the mask thought that it was scary. Why the music was doing what it was doing. I could always sort of um, predict where the scares were going to come because the music kind of swells and you get these these tropes that exist. And the more I consumed it, the more I was able to recognize those tropes. And the more I could see the sort of skeletal structure behind how film was made. And it was, a, it was a very interesting way for me to get into film, is through horror. But I think a lot of people do. And this one just takes all of that and turns it all the way up. It's a very incredible thing to see two people that you respect so much love something so I guess unconditionally they, they love it uh, for its flaws and and for everything good and everything bad and they really it's just good to know that you have company in high places I guess for me it's, it's really nice. To see them as just a couple of friends sitting around saying, "Oh, wouldn't it be really cool if we did this and that?" and and uh, I, I really do catch the seams in uh, in it that. And so, for me, it is uh, it has a lot of fun. And because of all of those uh, reasons, I'm not even sure if I give more than one. Uh, I love this film, and maybe we'll we'll both learn something about it today and together. And so, without further ado. I give you the the Cabin-in-the-Woods specific drinking rules. We're going to... Oh, wait a minute. Oh, guys. We almost forgot. We almost forgot the most simple
1: thing of all. Um, I mean, there was this man. He really loved cargo pants. But, um, for some reason, he was so obsessed with uh, filling up every pocket. And he didn't have that many possessions. So he couldn't. Um, so, he didn't buy them because he thought, what was the point, I can't fill up everything, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have cargo pants, you know? Pockets are there for a reason, pockets are there for some things, put something in them. Uh, he, he felt very strongly about this, um, the cashier at uh, the clothes store didn't really get it. Um, she tried to say, you know, it's just fashion. You can leave pockets empty. And then he got incredibly angry and he said no. No pocket should ever be left empty. Every pocket should be filled. Every pocket should fulfill its purpose. And that's why this man was here. To bring about the purpose of all pockets.
0: Wow. That's kind of how I feel about booze. You know. You, you pour yourself another drink, you can't just let it go. You have to drink it before you go to bed. Or before, I don't know, you go to work. I don't know your life. It's impossible to leave a half-drank, drink, sitting around. I think that's my purpose on this earth. Of course, we can't uh, always talk about our purposes because then we'd be forced to consider how uh, purposeless... We are. So the Cabinet in the Woods specific drinking rules are as follows. We're going to drink for Sinister Music. As I said earlier, Sinister Music is going to be a great precursor to any sort of violent thing going on. The writer-director of this know this trope very well, and so they're going to employ it quite a bit, and maybe to some comedic effect. We're going to drink for characters who subvert or reinforce their character types. So, we're gonna see Anna Hutchinson as Jules the Whore the Blonde, and anytime she says something that you wouldn't expect to see in a regular horror movie, you're gonna drink. And then anytime she uh, acts like the Whore, you're going to drink for that as well. This is, a, this is kind of a, a, a blurred rule here. And the same thing goes for, for Chris Hemsworth's Kurt, uh, Kristen Connolly's Dana, Franz Kranz, Marty and Jesse Williams Holden. Holden uh, being the the shy nerd. Franz Grantz being the stoner. Uh, Hemsworth Kurt being the dumb jock. And then Connolly being the uh, virginal sacrifice. And so you're going to drink any time they act the way that you think they should. And then any time that they sort of subvert that and say, Anna Hutchinson's character is extremely smart and she's very witty. and We're going to drink for those... Uh, little fun moments. And so maybe for that one, if you don't drink too much, you'll learn how characters are made. Won't that be fun for everyone who's not you? And then we're going to drink anytime there is outside interference in our main little group's horrifying weekend in the woods. While I uh, always talk about not giving a shit about spoilers, I don't necessarily want to Spoil the main crux of this? It did come out in 2011, so you should fucking know better. But this uh, this is a lot of fun. We we will drink. Uh, simply put, for outside interference in the horrifying weekend of our cast of uh, misfits who are all gorgeous, fit-inable uh, people. And so maybe they aren't misfits at all, are they? Hmm. Maybe we're the real misfits. Think about that. Partisan politics are the greasy polyps impacting progress in our nation's capital. Too long have these white starches bunged things up to impede the positive flow of common-sense lawmaking, and I'm the exploratory finger that will excoriate the scourge to get things moving again. Hi, I'm Mike Olin, and I approved this message. Get it? It's a butt joke. Welcome back from The Cabin in the Woods. Oh my goodness, baby girl, that was nice. What a wonderful little thing. Uh, It is great to be reminded of all of the reasons over and over and over and over and over and over over again why one loves horror so much and just how much each version of horror can teach you about uh, how movies are made, human interaction, dialogue, Production design, set design, all all of the uh, the good things, all of the reasons that I got into horror are present in this film. And Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard really uh, did a wonderful job of pandering to me. I guess more than anything else, uh, this is this is nothing if not a wonderful pander to people just like myself, who who just really feel something deep when a horror movie is on really get into it when those tropes that uh, we know so well and are so near and dear to our hearts really start kicking around. This this made me feel like I was sitting in an audience at Frightfest in London. This made me feel like I was at home. And um, while it might not have been as good as I remember it being the first few times I've seen it, I definitely got something out of it that I haven't gotten before, and there is something quite important to be said about uh, films that can do that for you on your uh, umpteenth watch. Now, because this is obviously part of Metamarch Madness, Metamarch Madness, that sort of makes it sound like it's part of something to do with college basketball, and as somebody who knows absolutely nothing about either baseball or really uh, about the process of going to college, I can't really speak to, um, to anything uh, about college basketball. And so, you know, digging, digging that up really, I guess, from the, the pits of my brain. And so that's a, a huge mistake, and I apologize for it now to any of you who might be a college basketball fan. I don't really know how I got onto college basketball. That's good. It's good to talk about dumb shit that you don't care about. Uh, <laughs> Um, because this is a part of, uh, March... March? Because this is a part of Metamarch, we really do get to see the writer and director play quite a bit with the magic of interpretation. This is so wide open in that in in a sort of interpretive way. I think where a lot of people fall into traps when they start discussing art with other people is giving definitive opinions on things because that is how knowledge of of any kind is really presented to us as students and to children and to adults there are true things there are false things there are the way things work there are the way things do not work there is news there is fake news and so when you get into art and when you get into the minutia of trying to understand why a certain person feels a certain way and felt a need to make a certain thing you might jump to a conclusion. You might say, well, this is the definitive interpretation of this. This is what Goddard meant when he made Weekend. This is what Bunuel meant when he made Simon of the Desert. Doesn't really work that way. Um, And even if, in my opinion here, even if a director or an artist has a certain interpretation in mind when they produce a work, it doesn't mean that your individualized interpretation of that work is invalid. It, it doesn't get invalidated just because, the artist says, well the only reason I made that was because my mom was pissing me off and I sat there and I drew this on a napkin to inflame her, to make her feel terrible. Uh, Bunuel and Dolly made Shenandoah to confuse as many people as possible and in so doing sparked generations of critics and historians and artists to think outside the box and to psychoanalyze what they were doing and to try to find meaning in something that was quite inherently meaningless. And, and to me, there, there is a great beauty of that. And, and to get back to Cabin in the Woods, because that's what we're talking about here. Godard and Whedon really goddard very different directors, Goddard and Whedon here really leave this open for you. You you can really take any of these characters with a grain of salt, or you can or you can I guess follow them quite deeply into their holes. So you can you can take the say Harbinger and impose a religious symbolism onto him. You could see as Whedon and Goddard said of Bradley Whitford and Richard Jenkins, that they are their sort of proxies in this film. Those two men represent who they are, sitting at a desk directing how people die, minutely tweaking settings on a mixing board to get the desired effect. You can see the under-beings as being us, as being the audience, as being people infected by capitalism or by any number of things. You can, you can see anything in this film uh, as, as a sort of dualism that it represents, hence the reason why I prompted you to drink for both people subverting their tropes, and people enhancing their tropes. And, and it is up to you in the end to decide how much is actually them and how much is this interaction or meddling from the Whitford and Jenkins characters whose names I have forgotten because they um, they are truly unimportant in, in this dialogue. And I have to really sit back and appreciate that because there is something quite wonderful about that in the openness that our writer-directors leaves us. The the uh, constant reflexive moments that get landed in our face when Thor and his blonde bombshell go into the woods and they're about to have sex. We cut back to the control room and it seems like every bald white male in a lab coat is standing there ogling uh, like uh, so many cartoon wolves trying to capture Red Riding Hood. You, You have this horde of creepy dudes just waiting to uh, see her bare her chest or get naked or have sex it is this pornographic moment but at the same time it's also incredibly reflexive because if you're like me sitting alone in a room several drinks deep you're also quite enamored by how this uh, scene is so tenderly shot especially anna hutchinson's character whose ass has literally been in your face in a pair of daisy dukes since the beginning of this film as soon as we make it to the cabin proper and the personas kick in the whore must act as the whore and she starts dancing around like crazy makes out with the wolf. She doesn't lose that brilliant comedic timing that Whedon sort of imbues her with, and that is quite special, but in in the moment that I was originally referencing, in which all these lecherous men have their tongues out and their hearts all but beating out of their chest... For me, sitting alone, watching this, it felt almost as if, if looking into a mirror, especially, um, I guess, doubly so, remembering myself watching this as a much younger person, um, and in in many, uh, I suppose, very shameful ways, uh, hoping to to see some titties. Yeah. I suppose that's why i drink during this is so those those shameful moments come to the forefront the uh alcohol lubricates those horrifying uh, thoughts of my past and allows me to i guess speak them more freely but um it was quite shameful on uh, upon this viewing to remember that moment how i felt about it the first time i saw this which i believe was even in a theater and then now as as a, a twice married adult who uh, gets to see the folly of youth reflected so boldly uh, it was um it was certainly quite something and i i really do respect the writer and director for for shoving that so forcefully down my throat in that moment. The meta obviously doesn't stop there. It goes, it goes into one of the things that I, for so long, felt was very frustrating about horror movies. It was one of the reasons why I didn't care for slashers and why initially Scream rubbed me the wrong way and so many other silly not silly that's that's a, that's a harsh word so many other slasher formulaic genre pieces rubbed me the wrong way and that is characters acting in a way that I would not that no rational human being in my opinion of what makes a human being rational would act going into a dark room a splitting up, dropping a weapon, deciding to not tell other people what's happening to you or any number of things. I, I assume you get it at this point. If if you if you've watched horror you could absolutely assume what makes so many of the horror films that you've seen frustrating for audiences. I've seen horror movies in large crowds and had people heckling the characters. And so there are stereotypes that are certainly involved when you have characters who must sacrificially make bad decisions for the narrative. They have to die. They have to not turn the lights on. They have to explore in the dark or to split up or to make these purposefully ill-advised decisions in order for this narrative to continue. Now in this, not only do they highlight that quite a bit, but they take it a step further in the Whitford Jenkins characters who are able to Uh, push them in the directions of these stupid decisions. Turning the temperature up in the woods to get Hutchinson's shirt off, or opening a vent and throwing through some sort of chemical to make Hemsworth decide uh, against his better judgment to uh, split up. And uh, later in the film, the uh electric shock the small electric shock that makes Connolly drop the knife that that could be so useful you have this constant sense not constant sense you have this constant affirmation of the manipulation that goes into every moment when you're watching a horror movie and instead of being wildly frustrating like it normally is it becomes a playful moment of genius, and to turn stupidity into genius uh, is obviously quite a stroke of, of of real world genius. Because that, you know, for me, that is one of the hardest parts about watching horror is sitting there as a uh, thing that contains empathy for other things, and watching them act counter to how I believe they should. And this says, hey, listen, they're going to act the way that they act. This film has to have them die. The world needs them to die. You need them to die, otherwise this isn't going to be horror. And so they're going to be real people and so we're going to force them to act a certain way it doesn't diminish the intelligence of the characters and it doesn't cheapen their deaths every death is still in that way quite impactful because we know that they don't fit neatly into these boxes hemsworth is very good at throwing a football. Connolly likes economics. Uh, Jesse Williams and Hutchinson are absolutely gorgeous, and uh, and good old Frank Crantz is a hilarious pothead who somehow can uh, deconstruct Soviet modes of economics and also see sort of past all this stuff. And so because they all minutely or overtly subvert and accentuate stereotypes, it's hard to disconnect ourselves from them. And so when they do die, it becomes much more impactful, especially because of how much we see everyone else in there acting as a voyeur i guess the best example of this is brian white's sort of military government man who is seen he, he is he's the new guy in the tunnels i'm i'm not sure why the government has sent him there they they don't really cover that and that's fine it, you know again it it doesn't really matter why he's there this doesn't matter why anyone's here They've been picked because they fit certain stereotypes and uh, they will fulfill those stereotypes in the end. So the the military guy comes and he represents, to me, this is the, the, I mean, the first times I've seen this, he just represents a sort of skeptical other, some outsider who we're all forced to, I guess, listened to as the as the straight man to Whitford and Jenkins but this time around I really saw how much he is that person who doesn't like horror or does not understand horror who constantly asks me and by mental association I must assume other horror fans about why they like horror I get asked quite a bit from people who don't like scary movies going to Fright Fest and uh, several other horror movie screenings I guess just one-offs coming out of it people will ask me what have you just seen oh that why do you why do you like horror what's this what's that well you know why do you like to see death I believe it was uh, Peter Bogdanovich who who has a quote about why he does not like horror. And to paraphrase, because I'm drunk and I didn't think about this until right now, he basically says that because he experienced real horror in his life, something horror happened in his life. I don't know if he's ever expanded on that. He has no need to watch it in his art. Of course, there's no, uh, there's no really coming back from that. If somebody tells you that they, they, they've experienced horror, why do you want to, you know, my mother was murdered. Why do you want to watch something in which mothers are murdered? Are you a bad person? You, you're sort of beholden to either, uh, answer quite delicately or not really give your full answer. Now, when, Uh, White's character is talking to, I didn't look her name up, she is a a scientist of some kind. When he's asking her all these questions, she's sort of unprovoked, I guess he doesn't even ask her the question, she unprovoked provides answers to a lot of these things. She says, Oh, they're betting because they need to let off steam. Oh, this must seem really horrible to you. Oh, you get really used to it, and and he he keeps going. But um, to me, this time, he does represent that that real life person who wants to know and might quite reasonably assume uh, that people who like horror are sociopathic or broken. Or, or there's something wrong with us. And mixed with the, the sort of much more impactful deaths and the uh, voyeuristic nature of a group of scientists watching and really hoping to see a group of people die, it's a lot harder than usual to answer that question. And so it, it really did make me think this time, why do I love horror so much? Obviously, it has not changed my opinion on horror. I don't think any single film could, let alone a uh, a remake, not a remake, a rewatch. But it, it, it did make me consider why I love this so much. And I think um, one of the one of the easiest answers I can give is uh, is a direct refute to White's character. If White's character is indeed a military man is indeed a, a governmental employee of some kind, he must recognize that the world is so full of tragic injustice and death and and horribleness that, to have an outlet such as horror that can, can make you feel the outlets of seeing justice carried out or of subverting your expectations or of scaring you in an environment where there are no consequences for that fear. There are so many wonderful little reasons why horror is important to me. And this really made me consider quite a few of them. The alcohol uh, erased a lot of the eloquence there and certainly a lot more of the the detailed experiences. But overall, I think that that is one of the amazing things about watching not only something that is horror, but uh, of something that is meta-horror because uh, if we take for granted that horror uses tropes and follows a, a set of guidelines, and um, for me personally, in order to step away from the empathy of all the killing and all the fear involved in the detailed setups, I need to stay sort of hypervigilant in order to uh, be able to sleep afterwards, because it is quite late at the time of this recording, and so I do need to go to bed. Um, And, and, you know, not necessarily for this, because this is very funny, but for other horror movies, I do stay quite vigilant, especially when I'm watching at night, because I do know that I need to go to bed, and so if I'm watching how the film is made, I'm less involved in, I guess, getting sucked into the narrative. And so... That is a group of reasons why I love horror movies. And then you take all those reasons, magnify them, and you throw them in your face to make it meta. You say, hey, look, this is how it's made. This is how all of this is made. And I'm still going to make you feel something afterwards. Uh, That, to me, is why meta horror might be one of the best genres of all time, I guess, two quickly wrap it up and not I guess but I've written this down already so I know I know what I'm gonna do I'm going to recap some little uh funniness uh things that I that I happen to see towards the end because most of the meta horror things that happen in this are uh towards the end as far as I'm concerned yes there are a few references to a lot of things in this but but in the end you you get a barrage of them because we see all of the monsters uh, hidden in their various cubes. And that is reference number one to Cube. What a great uh, film. I watched 2 and 0 recently. Whoa, what a pile of stinkers. Those are wonderful. Um, You get Clive Barker's Hellraiser, uh, I guess Pinhead, and Cenobites are seen in these uh, many cubes. We have obviously reference to cabin in the woods and the deadites from Army of Darkness, which we've seen on this. The the glass elevators look to me to be more like Thirteen Ghosts than Cube. The way they move is sort of like Cube, but that that sort of um, and not the original Thirteen Ghosts, that horrible remake um, <laughs> where. The glasses sort of blessed by djinn priests. Um, <laughs> that 13 ghosts. Uh, panning back from all of those wonderful little uh, elevator boxes, I saw the Shining Twins. And then we obviously have Sigourney Weaver. Spoiler alert. Too late, fucker. Ah, you already heard it. Sigourney Weaver. Towards the end, you get her voice uh, there a little bit mixed with probably every horror character that uh, you've ever seen. I mean there are some very interesting things that I I noticed there towards the very end. I I don't think there's you know, I can I I, I could just read off of the trivia page of IMDb, but to be honest, um I didn't necessarily notice them myself and And so it does seem quite a bit like cheating here. And on that... (sighs) uh, Is that a bombshell? Is that a high note? Is that a low note? Do we even know what we're talking about anymore? Probably not. Stay tuned. For next week. Where episode 37 will be about another meta film. Maybe it'll be horror. Maybe it'll just be about film. We really don't know. I'll have my work cut out for me, but that's alright. I'll be in London. And that means... Maybe I'll even have a guest. God knows, doesn't this go faster for you with a guest? You gotta do it for the fans. Oh God.